Again, from my garage office, while our WFHB studios remain off limits during this COVID-19 crisis. And again, we're going to dig into the Big Talk interview archive, this time for a chat we had with Peter Lopilato, editor and publisher of The Rider magazine, and the brains and brawn behind The Rider film series. Both enterprises are now Bloomington institutions having been fixtures on the local scene for four decades. The magazine came first, followed soon after by the film series. In both cases, Peter had no idea that either endeavor would be a success. Somehow both have survived through recessions, changing technologies, new paradigms in the workplace, and even now through a global pandemic. The film series has been suspended due to the coronavirus lockdown, and the magazine is available only online for the time being. Peter assures his readers and viewers that both the magazine and the film series will return to their regular schedules once the virus crisis passes. Our original interview with Peter Lopilato was condensed to fit an eight-minute time slot for a feature on the Daily Local News back in the fall of 2016. Now, for the first time, we'll air a more in-depth 28-minute conversation with him. Here he is, Peter Lopilato. Peter, welcome. Thanks for being on the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Mike. Terrific. You don't know how long I've waited for this. <laughs> how long, Peter? Oh, it's almost my entire public life. <laughs> Peter, you do have a public life. You know, You're... I was waiting for this before WFHB was even a, even a station. You said, make a community radio station, and then I'll be on it. I think they use that in their fundraising, their initial fundraising. <laughs> yeah. What else? You are a public figure in Bloomington in as much as you're an institution. You're, you Don't run, use that word. Well, yes, uh, you belong in an institution. That's a little bit more accurate. Yes. You run the Rider film series. You run the Rider magazine. Yeah, even, even that word, run, is, is disputable. How's that? Um, I, w- I would say there's a better chance that they run me. That's the old line I've always heard. You don't own a business, the business owns you. Speaking of that, how long have either you been running the rider or the rider has been running you? Um, Well, too long is the short answer, but uh, 1979? 1979? Yeah, really. You created the whole idea? More or less. Okay. Why? Why not? Well, that's the end of the interview. Thanks, Peter. <laughs> it was, it's been great, Mike. <laughs> no, why did you do that? You know, my parents used to say that to me. That's it's, right. That's exactly what they would say to me. Mm-hmm. And they would also say, when are you going to come back <laughs> to the East Coast? It was in 1979. Uh, there were a number of um, weekly newspapers or news magazines in Bloomington that I was writing for. And in those days, everybody pitched in. So you wrote, or at least I wrote, and then I helped with editing, and I helped with, I learned how to do layout, 
back when cutting and pasting was really cutting and pasting. Actually melted wax. Melted wax right. and exacto knives. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, and so those publications, as they tend to do over a period of time, uh, the people that started them just, there was never any money involved, really. Uh-huh. And the people that started them just ran out of energy or moved on to other, other, other cities. I had some ideas about, you know, the way a publication might be done and maybe, maybe done a little differently, and so I wanted to try them. Can you recall the names of some of those publications? There was one called uh, Primo Times. Uh-huh. And there was another called the Bloomington Examiner. Mm-hmm. There was a third called Fun City that was published by Leon Varjan. He lived in Bloomington for a few years. Mm-hmm. We were lucky to have him here. And he ran for mayor in the Democratic primary. Uh, he was sort of a political street theater performance artist. Great guy, very clever, very energetic. And he decided to start his own paper and published it weekly for... About a year. Then he moved to Madison, and he did even grander things. All right, so you get the idea that you could do something a little bit different, but as you're saying, there was no money in it for you. Now you're starting your own publication. Where do you think the money's going to come from? I I had no idea. I mean, I could tell you where the money did come from. Tell me. Yeah, I went out, <clears throat> my, I went out and... Um, Sold enough ads to cover the printing bill and some other expenses, and I convinced people to pay in advance. What? That's amazing. You must be quite uh, persuasive. Well, you know, Donald Trump says that he's persuasive and he's a good negotiator, but this is one area that he and I have in common. It's possible I'm a better negotiator. Yikes. So you started off, you got an issue on the street somehow, some way. Who was all involved with you? Paul Smedberg. Paul is a very talented visual artist and poet, and he designed our logo, the, the black box with the white R in it. And yes. he did, he did, he locked himself in his room uh, the weekend before we were going to print that second issue because we still didn't have a logo, and he, he, uh, he apparently did 500 of those R's. Huh. And then he chose the third one. W- was it a weekly at the time? It was bi-weekly. Okay. We uh, were bi-weekly every for... Other week. um, I don't even remember how long. Not that long. Do you happen to recall the first big article you had in that first issue? Well, I don't recall the first big article, but I can tell you that we had a feature article by Jim Mannion. Oh, right. Who listeners of this station know. Uh-huh. Um, and I think we had in that first issue um, a feature article by um, a young man named Anthony DeCurtis, uh-huh. who went on to write for... Rolling Stone. He's an editor at Rolling Stone, and uh, he's published books, and he's, he's a music, music journalist. But uh, that article, uh, he wrote about an up-and-coming young singer-songwriter who had just released his initial album, and he said, you're going to hear from this person someday. He's going to be, he's going to have staying power. And that would be? Elvis Costello. So that was in our first, I think that was in our first issue. You're doing this, but did you envision it lasting, uh, let's not even say 40 years, let's say... Let's say 40 days. 40 days, did you envision that? Yeah, it was a temporary thing. It was, let's just see how long we could do this for a while. And if not, why then something else? Yeah, right, move on and do something else. But you were able to 
get, I assume, some of those same advertisers back for the second issue, the third? They didn't know any better. Where did the film series uh, fit into this uh, crazy idea? Yeah, it didn't. <clears throat> it doesn't really fit in in a sense. But um, you know, I grew up in the New York area. Okay. And I was hearing from friends and family members about movies that they were watching in New York that never came here. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just, I've always been interested in movies. So I just, and I was also interested in coming up with some way, you know, we published a magazine, we were in a small office and uh, on Kirkwood Avenue, above where the Uptown Cafe is now. Uh-huh. And, um, well, that was, you know, that building was, at that time it was the Allen Building. Mm-hmm. And it was... Was um, it falling apart at the time? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. It was artist lofts. Uh-huh. You know, it was a very cool place. Actually, it was, it was interesting because it was a combination. So there were these, you know, for lack of a better term, hipster, vagabond artists that were living there, and they were doing interesting stuff. But there were also people living there who were, you know, on fixed incomes, and they were in their, like, 50s and 60s and maybe even a little older than that, huh. that had lived there for many years. And so, but everybody got together. It was one big happy family. And it was really like, you know, I've said this before, but it was um, really like Bloomington's own little Chelsea Hotel. Wow. But in any event, we were, st we were so we were in an office there, and, um, which was also doubling as my apartment at the time. I was looking for some way to actually have some sort of, to meet, to meet our readers, to have some sort of contact with them face-to-face, -face, just like you and me right now, Mike. Oh. And... And so that was part of what I was thinking when I, I thought maybe we'd show some movies and people would come and, and have a good time. It yeah. was pretty, it was, it was just sort of a fleeting idea. And I said, well, let's just do this and see what happens. Okay, let's get this straight. So 1979 for the magazine. April 1st. 1979. Whoa, very fitting, April Fool's. Now, when, uh, probably you don't have the date for the movie series. Yeah, but it was sometime in late July. Of? 79. Oh, so that very Pretty, same yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Where did you exhibit the film? Where Ninth and Walnut. There's a club. It used to be called Atlas at one time. It was called Mars at one time. Ah. It's, it's, it's been under a number of different owners. It's had many different names. At that time, it was owned by a former IU basketball player. His name is Archie Dees. Okay. And uh, so, the, so it was called Time Out. And I knew him. And I knew even better his... Uh, the manager of the club, whose name was Skip Twitchell. Uh -huh. So I, I ran the idea by him. And he helped us out, and um, we, we started the film program. Do you happen to recall the film? The first movie? Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, His Girl Friday. Get out. Yeah, it was. One of my favorites. Well, one of mine Howard as well. Howard Hawks. Howard Hawks, Cary Grant, Rosalind Russell. It's about as good as it gets, you know? One of my, you uh, can argue. You can argue that that to this day, that's the best film we've ever shown. You can argue that our film series has gone downhill from there <laughs> in terms of quality. There are so many good lines in that movie, and there are more words spoken per minute of film than any other movie that I've ever seen. Uh huh. Uh huh. Did you have any uh, idea that this film series would last more than forty minutes? No, we rented a projector. 
the film series was one night a week at that point. Okay. So it was on a Wednesday night, and we just every Wednesday I went over and rented the projector for the night. So there was no commitment from that in that sense. There was no big investment. And then I think after a year, maybe, I thought to myself, hey, this this is working. Uh, so we we actually went out and bought a couple of projectors. I'm sure they were used at the time. Uh, what and kind you know of who gave us a projector, by the who? way? Doc Councilman. No kidding. He gave us a projector. Who was His very well known for using video uh, and ca cameras underwater. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, he, he was well known for that. And he developed these ways of moving the hands underwater that helped, you know, push the swimmer along. He was something huh. else. He was, he was an amazing man. Yeah. And he and his wife and his daughter used to come to movies. Wow. And, um, and one day... I mean, I think his wife was, was the one who was sort of <laughs> dragging him along oh, really? to the films. But, but they came pretty regularly. And, um, yeah, one day they offered us a projector that they were no longer using. No kidding. Yeah. Boy, that is a Bloomington story if I've well, ever heard Well, I don't know one. about that, but okay. I've never been able to get off that merry-go-round mic. <laughs> would you like to? There are times when I would like to. Well, why? But, I mean, you know, I'm trapped. I'm like John Lennon. You know, one of the biggest mistakes I ever made in my life, and this just shows, God, I regret this. So I used to go to New York a lot to see movies because that was the only place I could see them at the time. So I would probably spend, I don't know, maybe 10 weeks a year in New York City. Huh. And I went to a lot of films at Lincoln Center mm -hmm. where they had four or five theaters at that time. And that's where all the foreign films were, many of the foreign films were shown. And I would see, I might see two or three movies a day, and I'd have some time in between films. So sometimes I'd have an hour, and I'd go get a cup of coffee somewhere. And there was this coffee shop right around the corner. And I went there once or twice. And the coffee wasn't especially good, but really, even worse, it didn't have the sort of hipster cachet that made me want to go back again. Right. So I would go out of my way. I would walk five, six blocks, and I often had a limited amount of time. I would walk five or six blocks to some other place that um, just had the right ambiance. And so years later, I found out that uh, John Lennon used to hang out in the place that I had spurned. Wow. Well, no wonder he because did. Because he would go there because no one else went there. Including you. Including me. Can you name any favorite stories that you've run? Stories that really you're proud of? Oh, come on. Now. Oh, what sure. No, I, and I'm not going to pick and choose. It's like asking somebody to say, well, which, which of your five children is your favorite? Well, let's get into that. Which of your children is your favorite? My older son. I thought so. No, maybe, but... maybe it's my daughter. <laughs> I go back and forth. Really, this is serious. You, you, you won't go out on a limb and say, this story was... This story was the hot stuff. Well, you're asking me to do two things that I won't do. One, choose a story, yeah. and the other one is go out on a limb. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, a man who's never gone out on a limb, hasn't started a business, two businesses. Yeah, but that's worked. misleading. Why? Now, my inclination is to not walk out on that limb. That's my, my inclination. And, and usually if I do go out on that limb, somebody has, has pushed me at least a little bit. Did anybody push you into these two things? No, nobody did. So you were born where? I was born in New York in, uh, in Westchester, just north of New York City. Right, that's in, the suburbs. The suburbs, Westchester County. So what's the town? The town is 
uh, Yonkers. You were in Yonkers. I was in Yonkers. Yeah. yeah. What did your parents do? Well, my mother, before she became a mom, was a dressmaker in the garment district in Manhattan and worked for some well-known designers at the time whose names I don't know or don't remember. <laughs> um, my dad worked for the post office in Manhattan for 50 years. Started out delivering mail, just like everybody else. Yep. Then he worked his way up to, um, he was like operations director for Manhattan. Have you ever thought about teaching any of these things that you're now a great expert in? I, no, I haven't thought about that. It's never occurred to me. Are you a great expert in anything? No, I'm not. Not even putting out you know, a magazine? Look, I've never taken a journalism class. I've never taken a film class. Probably I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. You're the final editor of the stuff that comes out in your magazine. You're the guy who says go or no. Yes, that's true. And Years ago, that wouldn't have been true. When I worked for those other publications okay. that we mentioned earlier, the final editor was the typesetter. You delivered, right. you delivered the galleys to a typesetter, a professional typesetter. Yes. And even though he was just being paid to, to literally to type, he would, make, he would make changes to the editorial cop, copy. He would. And he, there's nothing unusual about that because <laughs> I know from reading books about journalists and so forth that even the great newspapers of the day, <laughs> the, the typesetters were the he, and final guys. And then it would be too late to do anything about it. You were stuck with whatever changes he made. Not a thing you could but do. But that doesn't happen anymore. Right. So. Because it's all there. You find it easier now, obviously. Oh, it's so much easier. All you do is hit a button. Yeah. The film series still goes on. The magazine still goes on. Do they help each other? Yeah, I think they do, sure. I mean, I think the magazine gives the film series a higher profile in the community than it might have otherwise. Yeah. What about vice versa? Yeah, I think that happens too. I'll Maybe. tell you something about memory yes. and how things slowly come back. I went to, a, I went to my maybe my 20th high school reunion. It doesn't matter. I went to a high school reunion and... You know, everybody remembers different stuff from high school. So I went up to the, this one kid and he was no longer, he was now an adult. And I said, I, I said, boy, Greg, I remember when we were sitting in English class. This was a Catholic high school. I remember when we were sitting in English class and we had all been assigned to memorize poems. Mm -hmm. And he had been assigned to, to, to memorize and then recite Gunga Din by Rudyard Kipling. Yeah. So it's so Gunga Din is is a long poem. Yikes. And he hadn't done it. I was sitting in the first row and he was standing at so he was standing right in front of me, basically where you are. And um and I could just tell by the look in his eyes that he hadn't done it. Panic. So he knew the first couple, two or three verses. And then after that he just started making stuff up with an Irish brogue, but it was all it was all gibberish. So, I, a for some reason that struck me as extraordinarily funny, and um, and I said to him, I just said, "Boy, that was the funniest thing." And he said to me, "Boy, Peter, I don't have any memory of that whatsoever." And six hours later, at the end of the evening, he taps me on the shoulder, and I said, "Yeah, Greg, what is it?" And he starts reciting the poem. It all came back to him. Wow. Yeah. So, so anyway, the same thing happened when you asked me to... The retrieval you. mechanism yeah. was kicked in somehow. Yeah. Speaking of that, how the heck did you wind up in Bloomington from 
New York and high school and Westchester County yeah, and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do most people wind up here? You went to school here? Yeah, I went to school here. Well, why the heck did you go to Indiana University? Um, somebody told me that the English department was one of the best in the country. So there you go. Did it do you any good learning that English stuff? No, I don't know. What was your idea? What were you going to do with your life? I had no idea. I'd just always gone to school, and so I just thought I should continue to go to school. Well, you're a ne'er-do-well. You know, that's right, yeah. Still? I wouldn't deny that. Are you still? Yeah. Boy, you got a good thing going, though. Well, you know. You're a no Hey, you're getting interviewed on the radio. That's That's true. Yeah, and you know, had you told me, how many years is it since we've started this publication? Way back. Yeah, way back when. If you had told me that I was going to be interviewed by you on the radio, I would first of all, I would have said, oh, come on. I've but, never heard of that guy. Yeah. <laughs> you were in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what were you doing in 1979? Yes, I was just finishing up working in hospitals because I had been thinking of going into the medical field. Mm -hmm. And I had been working on ambulances and in hospitals. And in the spring of that year, I said, yeah, you know, that's too much responsibility. And responsibility and me are not on the closest of terms. What did you do on ambulances? Picked people up and saved their lives. Really? Uh, one of the you things, must have seen amazing things. I saw amazing things. Worked for a private ambulance company called Burr's Ambulance, B-E-R-Z. And Burr's uh, motto was, when minutes count. But the interesting thing about ambulances in Chicago, and it might have been the same in all big cities, is in an earlier day, 30s and 40s, say, ambulances were run by funeral homes. Really? Yes. So if you called an ambulance... The funeral home ambulance would come to you. Well, what do you think that would lead to? Well, I, <laughs> I mean, I can see it. You know, why make two separate trips? So, you know. Oh, he doesn't look. Oh, no, he's not going to make it. Right. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> we better that's, run him right to the parlor. It's much more efficient. <laughs> Isn't that a riot? Yeah. So that's why the law, at least in Illinois, and I assume it's all over the country, is... Nobody but a doctor can declare a person dead. But in the old days, cops would say, oh, yeah, he's dead. So did you ever declare somebody dead? No, yeah. you couldn't. Okay, no, by uh, that by time. The, you by that time, yeah. yeah. What's to come for both the magazine and the film series? Mike, I have no idea. I just, you know, it's one day at a time. Is that so? That's absolutely so. Peter, you're married. What does your lovely bride think about all this craziness? Well, she humors me. Yeah? Yeah, she thinks it's fine. Yeah? Yeah, sure. Does she help in any way? Um, well, <laughs> she helps. We've got, she's got a full-time job and we have two kids. Right. Well, she, she does plenty. When our son was born, it was on August 31st, 2000 and, so, oh, anniversary. Oh, I've got to get him a present. I would, oh. I would if I were you. Right after I leave here. Yeah. Um, August 31st, 2002, it was um, the Major League players were going to go on strike the next morning unless they reached a labor agreement. Oh. And my wife went into labor that same day. So Speaking of labor agreements. Speaking of labor agreements, that's exactly right. So we were in the hospital together, and, um, you know, there was a TV on. So watching the news as the labor negotiations proceeded and they didn't go on strike they reached an agreement 
but the doctor. So now it's evening. <laughs> it's evening, okay? And the doctor came in, and it's time to deliver this child. And I could he's looking up at the TV set, and there's, there's a baseball game on. And he's... He's paying close attention to it. So to the baseball game. Yeah, to the baseball game, and I, it turns out he's a baseball fan, and then so we, then it turns out that he grew up in Cincinnati, and his father, took him to a World Series game in I guess 1961 yes. between the Cincinnati Reds and the and the Yankees. Yeah. In Cincinnati, and then I Crosley said, Field. Uh, yeah, and then I said, well, my dad took me to a World Series game that same year in the, in the, in, in, in the Bronx. Yeah. And so Can the, you imagine that? Yeah, what are the odds? A million to one. Yeah. So at the end of the day, you know, my, my son was born. Yep. And the labor pact was, was formed, was agreed upon. The players didn't go on strike. So it was a, it was right. It was a successful day all around. What brought you more happiness? Well, I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> I didn't think you were going to answer that. You're still a Yankees fan. Yeah. You're involved in a sort of a game of chance regarding baseball. Fantasy baseball. Yeah. It used to be but, called rotisserie baseball. Yes. Not, not that one. Still is actually. And my sister, when she was uh, going to college, worked um, for several years at La Rotisserie, which was a restaurant. Where it in, was. That's right. Yeah. She would have been, she would have waited on, on the founders of Rotisserie Baseball. Oh, They used to, that's right. Absolutely. Because she worked there several nights a week and, and several or days a week. And, and they were in there all the time. And the funny thing is, is that fantasy baseball is sort of third now to fantasy football and fantasy basketball, when you think about it, in terms of numbers of players and amount of money spent. No, oh, I, I, I didn't know This that. is what I understand. It's, all this time, you went when you were a young man to Bloomington, Indiana. You've spent the rest of your life here. Was it worth it? Oh, sure. Where else, where else would I have spent it? It's a good question. Where else would you have spent it? No, I mean, I don't, you know, I mean, there are other cities I like. Um, but, uh, and, you know, I do like the East Coast. But um, Bloomington, as we all know, has a lot to offer. It offers almost all of the cultural advantages of a large city. Uh-huh. And none of the environmental, or very few of the environmental disadvantages. Right. It's, it's a great place to live. I can drive from one end of Bloomington to the other in 15 minutes, no matter what time of day. Mm -hmm. And that's that's just amazing. Yeah. It, would, it would probably take me 22 minutes, because I, I drive slower than you do. I'm, I'm very impatient. Mm. Yeah, and I, and I dodge and weave, and I do the yeah. whole thing. Yeah, I stop when the light turns yellow. Do you really? Sometimes. Peter, do you have anything you'd like to add? Anything you'd like to say? Anything you think I'm being laxed about? I think we... Lax, you? Yeah, in terms of the, I don't yes. think you know the meaning of the word lax, Mike. I've mm -hmm. known you long enough. Are you kidding? Yeah. Boy, this guy doesn't know me one iota. Uh, no, you've done a fine job. I think you, let me congratulate you <laughs> <laughs> on, a, on a good interview, I think. <laughs> My guest was Peter Lopalato, the head honcho behind the Rider magazine and the Ryder Film Series here in Bloomington. Peter, thanks so much. Well, thanks, I enjoyed it very much, Mike.